Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Uh, we're going to read on into chapter 12 today. We're actually going to go through chapter uh, through verse 17. So I've expanded the reading a little bit. I've gone back and forth trying to figure out what what to do. Uh, so I've decided to include it all the way to 12:17. If you have your Bibles, or if you want to grab a pew Bible, please turn with me there, and we will read. God's Word together and hear what He has to say to us this morning. Here's what God's Word says to us today. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as He was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him, and they said to Him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. If I came over to your house and started rearranging the furniture without your invitation, you would probably get upset and wonder why in the world, why in the world am I doing this, and what in the world did I think I was doing in the first place? Now, you would be correct in feeling this way because I do not have the authority or the right to come into your home and rearrange the furniture. 
Uh, I don't even have a degree in interior decorating. Now, what if I did that and then sent you a bill for the work that I did for rearranging your furniture? Well, you might say, well, the preacher has some nerve coming over here and rearranging the furniture when I didn't want him to, and now uh, he's sending me a bill? You would be justified in questioning my authority, my right, and what is due to me. Now, in our passage today, the religious leaders react to Jesus' ministry, particularly his act of entering the temple and driving out those who sold and bought in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons for the sacrifices for people who came from afar. Jesus, in essence, rearranges the the furniture in the temple, so to speak. But unlike me, he does have the authority and the right to do so. The people uh, who were in authority, the religious leaders, they got upset. They were not happy with Jesus doing this thing and coming in and throwing around the temple furniture and causing all this ruckus. And so Jesus tells them uh, this little parable that we have before us today about the vineyard. Now, when you see uh, what Jesus has done here and uh, you think about the religious leader's response, they did not understand, uh, well, they did understand who Jesus was, but they did not like what Jesus was doing. Uh, He had the right to do this thing, and they didn't like it at all. Now, when we look at these three things that Jesus has here, uh, this morning I want to highlight Three things, the Lord's authority, the Lord's right, and the Lord's due. Now, first of all, the Lord has authority. The religious religious leaders asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They're asking Jesus for his credentials. Now, they don't really want an answer because they already know the answer to the question. They know that Jesus doesn't have the kind of credentials they're looking for. Uh, They know he has not uh, been ordained or accredited by any religious order or institution. Rather, this is a confrontation. They don't like what Jesus is doing, as I said, and so they're taking him to task over it. Now, religious bodies in that day and in in our day today are set up uh, to make sure that People in professions like ministers, well, we have them not only in ministry but in law and medicine and in other uh, other professions. Uh, They are set up to safeguard the people. You don't want a quack who's a doctor who has no credentials practicing medicine uh, or someone who really didn't know the law practicing law. Neither do you want someone who has not been trained in in the scriptures to to stand up and preach and proclaim God's word on a regular basis. So accrediting uh, institutions were created, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a way to protect people 
from people who aren't qualified to do the job. But on the flip side, sometimes, as in this case, it can be used to try to control people and to wield power to say that you have the credentials or you don't have the credentials. But here we see them asking Jesus uh, this question, trying to control his ministry. They wanted to put him down. They wanted to use this power to silence Jesus. But Jesus asked them about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, like Jesus, he didn't have any formal training or credentials, but his ministry was universally held to be inspired by God. He was a prophet of God, the people said. And so Jesus traps the religious leaders by asking them this question about John the Baptist. Now, if they say that John the Baptist was not sent from God, they would face the overwhelming backlash of public opinion. Everybody thought that John the Baptist was a prophet. And so they don't want to say that. But on the other hand, if they say John the Baptist was from God, then they would be admitting to Jesus' authority because John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. What did he say about Jesus when he baptized him? You know, here's one whose whose sandals I'm not even fit to to tie. Uh, This is one who has so much more authority than I do. And so if they say, yes, uh, no, John the Baptist was was not a prophet from God, then the people are upset. If they say, yes, John the Baptist was a prophet of God, then he can say, well, why don't you listen to what John the Baptist said and submit to me and my authority? So here we uh, have a very shrewd question asked by Jesus to these religious leaders. And the religious leaders refuse to answer. And therefore, Jesus refuses to answer them. You see, the problem was not that they did not understand who Jesus was. How could they deny the evidence? I mean, there were so many healings that we've been studying uh, through the past several months. Jesus cast out demons. He healed the blind and the lame and the deaf. He even raised people from the dead. I mean, they cannot but look at Jesus and the body of work that he did see all the miracles that he performed, and, and then say, well, he's not from God. Though, yes, there was a time or two when they did say that, that he does these things because of, of demonic activity. He's casting out these demons in the name of Beelzebub, they said. The problem was not that they saw Jesus and, and saw his power and thought, well, he's not the Son of God. He's not special. The problem was that their power and control was threatened by Jesus. And this is illustrated by the parable of the tenants that Jesus tells in chapter 12. Now in that parable, uh, God is the one who uh, plants the vineyard, and the vineyard is his people. If you want to lay out what everything stands for in this parable, the tenants are the religious leaders, the servants that come and and uh, seek to collect the fruit that is due to the owner of the vineyard. Uh, These are the prophets. So we're really looking at the whole history of Israel and the people of God throughout time. And they abuse the prophets. They ignore the prophets. They kill the prophets. And then now Jesus in this parable is predicting once again his own death. His only son is going to come. And they are going to put him to death 
and throw him to the side and ignore him. It is clear that the religious leaders here are more interested in their own power, control, and authority over anything else. They see who Jesus is and what he's done, and yet they reject that because they want the power, they want the authority. In the parable, they say, hey, this is the son. Let's kill him and we'll get the inheritance. We'll be in charge of the vineyard. It'll be ours and we'll take over. That's their motivation. And Jesus is exposing the motivation of these religious leaders. In John chapter 11, verse 48, they spell it out for us. Uh, it's recorded there that they have a meeting shortly after this happens, during that very last week of Jesus' life, and they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's what they were after, their place, their position of power and authority within Israel and their nation. Now, if they or anybody else for that matter, including you and me, grant that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that he is the rightful Lord of all, then that has some severe implications for our lives. Power and control no longer rests within ourselves. Someone else has that authority over us. That means that Jesus does have the authority to come in and rearrange the furniture in my life and your life. He does have the authority to expect some of the fruit of our lives. Now, Mark is obviously trying to tell us this in these, these past couple of chapters. It begins with the cursing of the fig tree that bore no fruit. And he does go into the temple and he, he, he uh, does that symbolic act of cleansing the temple because it's a fruitless religion that they were following. This is all about bearing fruit for the Lord and giving to God what is his, what is his due. And here we have Jesus demonstrating his authority, showing us his authority. And if he does have authority, then ha that has some radical implications for how we live our lives every moment of every day. Now, on a side note, it is interesting that Mark and the other gospel writers often record Jesus' explanation for his parables. You think about the parable of the sower. Jesus lays it all out for the disciples. However, in this case, verse 12 tells us they were seeking, uh, they were seeking to, to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They were right on the money. They knew what Jesus was talking about. They knew exactly what he was saying. One reason they knew this was because of this imagery of a vineyard and the people of God as, as the vineyard of the Lord, it was well known. Isaiah 5, Psalm 80 lays out a very similar, similar parable. And that is why these religious leaders, they, have, they make no mistake in the parable's meaning. They knew what Jesus was saying. They really, they really, there really was no arguing the point Jesus was making. That is why they just left and went away. That's why they sought to get rid of Jesus. Human beings, you and I, we have a natural tendency to want to get rid of Jesus. And it is not necessarily because we object to who he is. It's because we object to what he means in our life. 
If he's the Lord, then that means he's the boss and he's calling the shots. And he has the authority over us. And we don't like that. We don't want him to come in and rearrange the furniture in our life. But that brings me to the second point. The Lord's right. Not only does the Lord have authority, but he has the right. And when I mean, what I mean by right is, uh, why does he have the right to exercise this authority over us? Now, first of all, we could say because of who he is, he certainly has the right to exercise his authority over us. He's our creator, as the parable tells us. The man planted the vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower. Uh, he did everything for him for these people. Uh, He provided so much for them, and God does that for us as well. He's given us creation. He's given us all the blessings that we enjoy on a daily basis. He is God. He is the creator. We are the creation, and we are not God. So in one sense, just because of who he is, he has the right to call the shot in our lives. But he also has the right because he has earned it by his graciousness toward his people. Now, a person can be born to be king. Uh, We can look at uh, Prince William over in England. Uh, He's going to be king one day, not because of anything special that he's done, just because he was born into it. He's the next in line after Prince Charles. Nothing special about them. They were born into the position of being king. But the best kings in history not only were heirs to the throne, they also earned the right to be there by their deeds, by the things that they did for their country, for their people. And that's certainly true of King Jesus. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, but he's earned the right to be our king and to be our Lord by what he's done for us. He is the Son of God but he's the Son of God who came as a ransom for many. He laid down his life for us. He tells us in verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When we think about what Christ has done for us, why was he rejected? It must motivate us to give him our lives. When you think about how this one, who for eternity past knew perfect fellowship with the Father, uh, the closest relationship with the Father. And then when he laid down his life, he suffered on the cross for sin, he was rejected. Now, I don't know if you've ever been rejected. It's probably uh, everybody in here is, is the case that we've been rejected at some level. Maybe we got picked last at kickball in the in the fifth grade, or maybe uh, we got turned down asking a girl on a date. Uh, maybe we, we did not get the job that we were looking for. Everybody's tasted the pain of rejection. But the pain of rejection is greater uh, when the one rejecting us is closer to us. If someone rejects us for a job and we weren't really all that committed or invested in the job at all, uh, we were just looking around and fishing for a job, then it might not hurt so bad. But if we had spent years preparing and this was our dream job and, and we knew the boss and had a personal relationship and then were re- rejected for the job, that would be very painful. 
Very painful indeed. You think about what Jesus went through. Uh, He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understood the rejection from his heavenly Father that he had never experienced. And their relationship was closer than any relationship we could imagine. We have close relationships, but they're based on that relationship of the Trinity. We're created in His image for relationship with one another. But our sinfulness keeps us from knowing that fully. Within the persons of the Trinity, they had eternal fellowship with one another. And here is the Father and Son divided because of our sin. And so He was rejected. But that was always His plan. The cornerstone. Uh, that was rejected by the builders. Now, a cornerstone is the most important stone of a building. Uh, it's the first one you lay so that you can have everything level. All the other stones are laid in reference to that cornerstone. And when that one's off, uh, it's thrown to the side and they put a better one there. But in this case, the leaders reject the cornerstone. They say, Jesus is no good. We'll throw him to the side. But it has become the chief cornerstone. That was his plan all along. His rejection was for a purpose, so that he might build this building uh, for his people, with his people. We're all living stones, the Bible tells us. We're part of this building, and Jesus is the cornerstone. We're connected to it. And what he's done for us is so wonderful. He has not rejected us, but he's accepted us because he was rejected in our place. So, what is the Lord want from us? What is his right? Well, he's earned the right for us to give us, for us to give him his, our lives back to him. He's a great king. We owe it to him just because he's a king, but we also owe it to him because of what he's done for us. He's got the right to have us submit to his authority and his rule in our lives. What is it exactly that the Lord is asking of us? What is his due? And that's my, here's my last point. The Lord's due. This last episode, they're trying to trap him in an argument about money and uh, trying to get, get him in trouble with the Romans by asking him about paying taxes, a poll tax that would have been taken. And he could be branded as an insurrectionist if he says, you know, you don't need to pay to Caesar what's Caesar's. But he says this statement in verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now that word render means to make a payment with the implication of such a payment being in response to an incurred obligation. Or to put it in English, uh, to give or do something which one should in fulfillment of an obligation or expectation. It's an obligation to give what we're obliged to give. To the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying here. So what should we render to God? What is God asking from us? Well, according to the parable, we're God's vineyard. We're his people. We belong to him. And just like these tenants, Jesus wants some of the fruit of our vineyard. He wants us to give some of that Uh, which is his, which already belongs to him because we belong to him and all that we are belongs to him. We should give him some fruit. Back to the fig tree, um, talking about the temple. We're talking about being a fruitful Christian. We're going to continue to talk about this because he's describing for us in the next chapters 
what it means to be a fruitful Christian. How can we be a fruitful Christian? One way is uh, inwardly, uh, through a character change. We produce fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things should become evident in our lives. But also we give them the fruit of our worship. We give them the fruit of making disciples, of bringing other people to Christ, the fruit of good deeds, of service to Him and to others. These are the things that we're called to give, give to God what belongs to God. Our very lives belong to God. Everything belongs to Him, and we owe it all to Him. You know, we talk about, uh, we can talk about money. You know, is, it, is God asking too much to, uh, to ask a tithe and an offering from us? And we're to render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Uh, you know, that's another fruit, the fruit of worship, the fruit of giving ourselves and what we have to Him. In Psalm 116, the psalmist raises the question, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? That requires some thought. What are all the benefits that the Lord has given you? Have you ever stopped and counted your blessings, named them one by one as the old song says? Count your blessings, remembering all the benefits that the Lord has given you. And then ask yourselves, what shall I render to the Lord for all that he's done for me? He's the great king. He has the authority. He has the, the right to ask us these questions. He has the right to expect some of the fruit of our lives uh, in his service. He has the right to ask anything he wants of us because he is the Lord. And he has laid down his very life to make us his own. Is it too much to ask? Is it too much to ask that we give him some of our fruit? Well, the psalmist asked the question by saying, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Have you ever lifted up the cup of salvation and called on the name of the Lord? You know, it's a shame if Jesus has gone to all the trouble of providing this wonderful salvation, this, this costly redemption that he provides, and then someone just throw it to the side like it didn't matter. Jesus has done this wonderful thing for sinful people like you and I, and it would be a real shame for us to, to reject that, to throw it to the side like it didn't matter, like it costs nothing, or to say, uh, like those vineyards, you know, we, like the people, the tenants of the vineyard, we want to call our own shots. We don't want to submit to him. Why wouldn't we want to submit to this one who loved us so much that he would lay down his very life for us? He has our best interest at heart. So I want to encourage you to lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord and pay your vows to the Lord. Render to him what is his. Your entire life is his. Give it to the Lord and you won't be disappointed. And he will bless you in so many different ways with blessings that you can't even describe or imagine. It doesn't mean that things might, won't be difficult sometimes, but the, uh, the benefits in the long run for eternity uh, are unimaginable and such, such wonderful, wonderful blessings. As we come to the Lord's table here in a few moments, uh, we will be reminded once again of God's great sacrifice on our behalf. 
we have represented for us Jesus' rejection. Uh, we also have uh, fellowship with the Lord when we participate in this supper. Uh, we are in Christ and He is in us and we're connected to Him. And it's so wonderful. It is lifting up the cup of salvation and calling upon the name of the Lord, remembering what He has done for us. And we need that. We need to be reminded of what He's done because we tend to want to seize control of our own lives and, and we want to wield the power ourselves. But coming to this table reminds us once again that He is the Lord and He is a good God. He's, a, he's the loving Lord who laid down His life uh, for our benefit. Jesus instituted this to remind us of this so that we wouldn't forget like we want to do. He, uh, Paul tells us about how he instituted in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So the Lord instituted this. The Lord uh, did it for us by example. The Lord wants us to prepare our hearts to come to his table. So uh, in, with that said, he gives us this warning that we, we shouldn't partake of the, the Lord's table if we're not prepared to come to the Lord's table, if we're not repented of our sins, if we're not uh, a member of a church in good standing, uh, of a church that proclaims God's word faithfully. Uh, we need to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith the Bible tells us. So Christ instituted it, he gives us the example, and he gives us the command to come and participate in his body and his blood.